The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis, and today the next passage we come to is Genesis 32, 1 through 32. So I'll be reading a selection of verses from that passage. It says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Machanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all these deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan And now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Kyle. Let's pray this morning. Father, what a blessing it is to be gathered together around your word and with the opportunity to immerse ourselves in it this morning. We pray, God, that your spirit would be present and at work in our midst, 
causing the truths and the teachings we encounter to find a place in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the midst of a challenging situation, it's sometimes difficult to know how to pray. Because there are some who would say that the godliest and most spiritual way to respond to that situation is simply to rest in God's sovereignty and surrender the situation to God and just passively let him do as he pleases. After all, doesn't God know what we need before we even ask him? And doesn't he want us to trust in his wisdom rather than in our own? So, if you want a certain job, let's say, just entrust the situation to God. If you want to find a godly spouse, well, just surrender to God and let, that, let him bring that person whenever he desires. Or, if you're struggling with infertility, and maybe have been struggling for some time, just rest in God's sovereignty with the faith that he'll allow you to get pregnant according to his perfect plan. That's the mentality that some people have. If you really want to exhibit great faith in all these situations, just as it's sometimes said, let go and let God. However, even though the Bible certainly affirms the importance of trusting in God, it actually presents a much fuller picture of what it looks like to trust God and, and to exhibit great faith in the midst of all these challenging situations. In Luke 18, verses 2 through 5, for example, Jesus tells a parable of a widow who, ha- who was remarkably persistent in pleading with a judge for justice against her adversary. Jesus says, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Jesus then points out that if even this unjust judge eventually gives the widow what she requests, well, how much more will our loving God give his own children what they request if they're persistent in their asking? And we find that same theme numerous other times throughout the Bible as well. God repeatedly invites us to devote ourselves to prayer and tenaciously seek what we desire from his stores of blessing. And perhaps the clearest, given, uh, the, the clearest picture we're given in the Bible of what it looks like to wrestle with God in prayer is right here in Genesis 32. To give you some background, the previous chapters of Genesis record Jacob essentially stealing some very valuable privileges and blessings from his brother Esau. And Esau was so furious uh, at what Jacob had done that he made plans to kill Jacob 
Fortunately, Jacob was able to escape and fled several hundred miles away to his uncle Laban. And he stayed with Laban for about 20 years and became very wealthy. However, because Laban turned out to be just as much of a thief and a con artist as Jacob himself had been, uh, Jacob eventually decided it was time to return home. And that meant facing his brother Esau. And that's where the story picks up here in Genesis 32. Look at verses 3 through 6. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Now, what does that sound like to you? <laughs> Esau's coming to meet you, and, oh yeah, he's bringing 400 men with him. Kind of sounds like an army, doesn't it? Um, and so things aren't really looking very good for Jacob at the moment. We then read in verses 7 and 8. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So Jacob's hedging his bets here, right? He figures that if um, Esau attacks, well, then at least half of his large family will have a chance of escaping. After that, in verses 9 through 12, uh, Jacob offers to God a very desperate prayer in which he humbles himself before God and asks for God's deliverance and blessing in, in the situation. And then in verses 13 through 21, Jacob arranges for his servants to go out ahead of him and present Esau with a series of generous gifts in an attempt to appease Esau's anger. And Jacob even sends out his wives and children as a part of this strategy of appeasement. Look at verse 22 through the first part of verse 24. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. So there Jacob is, all alone and with Esau and 400 men on their way to meet him the next day. This was probably one of the most desperate moments and situations that Jacob had ever experienced in his life. And you might think that this would be rock bottom for Jacob. Yet as we'll see, things actually get even more difficult. And it's at this point in the narrative that some very uh, strange and mysterious things start to happen. Out of nowhere, a man suddenly appears in the middle of the night and forces Jacob into a wrestling match. We read in the second part of verse 24, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. 
uh, that's <laughs> pretty random, right? I'm sure Jacob is like, you know, dude, what, what the heck are you doing? It'd be kind of like if you or I maybe were just walking down the street and someone just jumped out of a bush or something and punched us in the face. I don't know. It, it, what in the world? Yet this mysterious man doesn't stop. We read that the two of them kept wrestling until daylight came. And I don't know if you've ever wrestled anyone before, but it takes a lot of energy. I mean, I get kind of tired just wrestling with my kids for 15 minutes in the evening. So can you imagine how exhausting it must have been for Jacob to wrestle a grown man throughout the night? And we can assume that at first, Jacob probably had no idea who this man was. Yet at some point during the night, Jacob figures out that this is no ordinary man and that it's actually God in human form. We're not told exactly how Jacob figures this out, but somehow he does. Because further down in the passage, Jacob marvels at the fact, and we're, we're going to read this in, in a little while, he marvels at the fact how he saw God face to face and even wrestled with God and didn't die. And by the way, this isn't the first time that we've seen God take on human form in Genesis. Back in Genesis 18, God appeared to Abraham in human form in order to predict Isaac's birth. He actually stopped over at Abraham's house and had lunch. And we find uh, a few similar occurrences in several other places in the Old Testament as well. Uh, these appearances of God in human form are known among theologians as theophanies. We talked about that back in Genesis 18. So in Genesis 32, Jacob was quite literally wrestling God. And this wrestling match functions as a parable of Jacob's entire life. Back in Genesis 25, verse 22, we were told that even from within their mother's womb, Jacob and Esau, you know, as twins, that they were, quote, struggling against each other. And that struggle would continue throughout Jacob's life. He would continue to struggle against his brother Esau, against his father Isaac, and eventually against his uncle Laban. And not only that, through his deceptive behavior and his me-first attitude, Jacob was also engaged in a lifelong struggle against God. So more often than not, Jacob's life has been a wrestling match as we see pictured here in Genesis 32. Now, obviously, here in this chapter, God wasn't actually trying to win uh, the wrestling match. If God had been trying to win, the match would have obviously been over almost before it even began. Instead, God was deliberately prolonging the struggle in order to bring Jacob to the point of utter exhaustion. That's what this was all about. God was bringing Jacob to the point of being utterly depleted of strength. We then read in verse 25, When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So eventually God decides things have gone on long enough, and he rips Jacob's hip out of its socket. I mean... 
ouch. I don't know if you've had a finger dislocated before. It's very painful. I can't imagine a, a hip. And this has the effect of uh, breaking Jacob of his self-sufficiency in a decisive way. Jacob was already at what he thought was rock bottom at the beginning of the night. And then he was brought to the point of utter exhaustion through this all-night wrestling match. And now God strikes the final blow, as it were, to Jacob's self-sufficiency by dislocating his hip. Jacob would now walk with a limp, possibly something for the rest of his life. And he would definitely uh, be in no condition to either fight or outrun his brother Esau the next day. So Jacob's now at what's truly the lowest point and has finally come to the end of himself. After a long struggle, he's now broken of his self-sufficiency in a decisive way. One commentator describes what happens here as the magnificent defeat of the human soul at the hands of God. And by the way, this experience of coming to the end of yourself it's, is what's necessary in order to become a Christian. In order to become a Christian, you have to first come to the realization that you've sinned against God, that your sins deserve eternal punishment, and that try as you might, there's nothing you can do to fix your situation. There's nothing you can do to make things right with God on your own. But the good news of the gospel is that God saw our wretched in our helpless condition. He had mercy on us. And in his love, God the Father sent his own son, Jesus, to come to this earth, to live a life of sinless perfection, and then to die on the cross to atone for our sins. That means Jesus suffered the punishment that we deserved so that we wouldn't have to suffer. That's what happened on the cross. Jesus voluntarily suffered God's judgment. God's judgment was poured out on him so it wouldn't have to be poured out on us. Jesus then defeated sin and death three days later by rising from the dead. And in order for us to benefit from what Jesus has done and experience his saving power in our lives, we have to come to the end of ourselves and put our full confidence in him, our full trust in him for rescue. And that involves coming to him with the empty hands of a beggar, recognizing that we can't even begin to earn his favor or to get right with him through our own efforts or really to contribute anything whatsoever to our salvation. Essentially, like Jacob, we have to be broken of our prideful self-sufficiency and put all our confidence in Jesus to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. So have you yet come to that point in your life? Has God ever wrestled you, as it were? 
to the point of utter exhaustion and decisively broken you of your self-sufficiency so that you're not trusting in your religious observances. You're not trusting in any good things that you could ever do, but you're trusting in Jesus alone. That's the only way we could ever be saved. And then this dynamic actually continues throughout the Christian life as well. Throughout our lives, God allows us to experience circumstances that are carefully designed, tailor-made, to break us of our self-sufficiency and teach us to find our strength and security and joy entirely in Him. As you might imagine, that's not an easy process. Having your hip dislocated is painful. And yet, spiritually speaking, that injury is an essential part of the process. There's no getting around it. No shortcut. Apart from the crucible of suffering, you and I won't ever become the people that God wants us to be. You know, you might compare it to a diamond. (laughs) Perhaps you're aware that... uh, Diamonds would never come into existence apart from very high temperatures and amounts of pressure. Like Without those extraordinarily high temperatures and amounts of pressure, diamonds couldn't be formed. Likewise, without trials molding us and shaping us and breaking us of our self-sufficiency and driving us to God, we wouldn't ever develop the kind of faith that God wants us to have. Then as we continue on in Genesis, we see how this wrestling match between God and Jacob plays out. After God wrestles Jacob to the point of exhaustion and dislocates Jacob's hip, Jacob is a different man. Look at verse 26. Then... He said, that is, that God in human form, he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. You see, Jacob understands in a deeper way than he's ever understood before that he needs God and that he has nothing apart from God. So instead of relying on his own clever schemes as he's done in the past, Jacob now clings to God in a state of utter desperation and determination for God to bless him. Although the pain of his dislocated hip must have been nearly unbearable, Jacob presses through the pain because he's so determined, so intent on obtaining God's blessing. He needs God's blessing. He can't live anymore apart from God's blessing. Hosea 12, verse 4, makes it clear that Jacob's statement, I will not let you go unless you bless me, is intended not as a proud demand, but as a desperate plea. Hosea says that Jacob, quote, wept and sought God's favor. Jacob was weeping as he held on to God and refused to let go until God blessed him. So the main idea of this passage is that Jacob experiences a transformation. 
in which he's broken of his self-sufficiency and becomes desperately determined to obtain God's blessing. Again, if you're taking notes, Jacob experiences a transformation in which he's broken of his self-sufficiency and becomes desperately determined to obtain God's blessing. After that, we see in verse 27 that the man asked Jacob, what is your name? He asked this not because he didn't know Jacob's name, but because he wants Jacob to admit something about himself. See, the, the name Jacob means deceiver. So by telling the man his name, Jacob is having to confess the kind of person he's been. We then read in verse 28, then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, this change of name from Jacob to Israel is a monumental event in Jacob's life. Back then, names were very significant. So this is, this is a big deal. And it symbolizes the inward transformation that's now taken place. The name Israel means he strives with God. Only now, that's meant in a good way. It's intended to complement the tenacity with which Jacob clung to God and sought God's blessing. Jacob finally understood that all his attempts throughout life to gain the upper hand in various situations amount to nothing. And that true blessing is found only in God. So in faith, Jacob pursues that blessing with every ounce of strength he had. And as it says, he prevailed in that pursuit. Therefore, God gave him the name Israel in recognition of his faith-driven pursuit of blessing, not in his own clever schemes, but blessing in God. And it's interesting to reflect on the fact that God says Jacob prevailed even though Jacob actually lost the wrestling match. Remember, God had dislocated Jacob's hip with the result that Jacob couldn't really do anything anymore except hang on like a rag doll. So Jacob lost the physical competition. However, this physical loss actually resulted in Jacob winning in the only way that ultimately mattered. He prevailed in his pursuit of God's blessing. And you know the same is true of us today. The great paradox of the gospel and then of the Christian life is that winning comes by losing. It's not until we lose in the sense of renouncing our prideful self-sufficiency and our rebellious way of living that we actually win in the sense of being made right with God and enjoying his presence both in this life and throughout all eternity. Winning comes by losing. After that, in verses 29 through 31, God blesses Jacob, and Jacob marvels at the fact that he's seen God face to face and lived. The sun then rises, and Jacob limps away from the site of the wrestling match as a new man. And as we think about this passage as a whole, I believe it's a wonderful picture of the way in which we also are invited to wrestle with God 
in the pursuit of God's blessings. Now, obviously, that doesn't happen physically, unless any of you have had any physical wrestling matches with God in your backyard that I'm not aware of. But it does happen on our knees in prayer. See, God's given us a way to obtain his blessings. He's actually spelled it out for us very clearly in the pages of Scripture. And that way is through prayer. Prayer is the vehicle through which God's blessings are released into our lives. And yet so often, if God doesn't answer our prayers as quickly as we'd like him to, what are we often tempted to do? (laughs) Just give up, right? Instead of wrestling with God throughout the night, as Jacob did, and desperately clinging to God, with a single-minded determination to obtain his blessing. We just give up. And sometimes, figuratively speaking, we don't even make it till midnight. Other times, maybe we make it to 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. or even 3 or 4 a.m. But at some point during the night, some point in the course of our prayers, we throw in the towel and decide it's either futile to continue praying or it's just not worth it. And yet by doing that, that's what I want us to say. By doing that, we miss out on incalculable blessings from God. I recently saw a news article that said every year that over $5.8 billion worth of gift cards is left unclaimed. $5.8 billion dollars. All of that value has already been purchased, but is never enjoyed. What a waste, right? Yet that pales in comparison to the blessings that God's ready to give us, but that we never get to enjoy, either because we don't pray, or sometimes because we don't persevere in our prayers. Guys, those blessings are ours for the taking. It's like they're up in heaven on on, on some shelf with our name on them. Reserved for us. Yet just like the gift cards, they're unclaimed. So the question is, does the judge know your name? You'll recall from earlier how Jesus used the parable of the widow and the judge to encourage people to persist in their prayers. So does the judge know your name? You know, whenever you ask for that, maybe that unsaved neighbor to to be saved, or that wayward child to start walking with the Lord again, or that, that broken marriage to be healed, is the judge like up? You know, there's Peter again, or there's Hannah coming to me for the thousandth time with this request that they want me to grant? Is that the level of persistence and tenacity with which you wrestle with God in prayer? And who knows? I mean, God might be intending to give you what you're seeking when you pray for the thousand and first time. But you'll never know unless you press through 
and keep praying. And of course, unlike the judge of Jesus' parable, the reason God sometimes delays answering our prayers isn't because he's reluctant to bless us. Remember, God's a father who loves us more than we could ever comprehend and who delights in giving good gifts to his children. Puritan author John Owen once said that the greatest sorrow and burden that we can lay on God's heart is to not believe that he loves us. And in reality, we should know God loves us because he's already demonstrated at the cross, hasn't he? So the God who loved us enough to die on the cross for us isn't reluctant to answer our prayers. Instead, he, the, the reason he often delays answering our prayers is because he knows the effect that having to wrestle in prayer has on our souls. He knows that experience of wrestling throughout the night strengthens our faith and draws us closer to him and teaches us to rely on his strength rather than on our own. And so we're blessed not just as a result of the wrestling, you know, when God finally answers our prayer, but even in the experience of wrestling itself. In fact, I think we could even say that you and I are never closer to God than when we're wrestling with him in prayer. And there are two things in particular I'd like to, I think we do well to wrestle for in prayer. One of them is for people to be saved. Our friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, anyone else we know who isn't yet a Christian. Understand that the reason prayer is even a thing is not just to you know, help us have a more comfortable life, but as a tool for the advancement of God's kingdom. And many times, I'll just say, it takes a prolonged season of prayer for many people to come to faith. So are you willing to wrestle in prayer for the souls of people around you? Is that something you do on a regular basis? And thinking even more of that metaphor of wrestling, have you ever stayed awake at night because you were so, you were praying so fervently for God to save people? Maybe to save a particular person. Or have you ever wept in your prayers because you were so desperate for God to save someone? Apparently, Jacob wept as he sought God's blessing in Genesis 32. Have you ever wept? I mean, if there's anything that's worth weeping for, is it not the multitudes of souls all around us who even at this very moment are headed toward a Christless eternity. God invites us to seek their salvation through what often ends up being a prolonged season of persevering in our prayers. 
One way in which my family has seen the power of a prolonged season of wrestling and prayer, even just recently, has been in our prayers for a family that we've been trying to reach out to for some time now. Um, this family used to be, um, they used to send their, their child to my wife's in-home daycare. And uh, during that time, we, we really did everything we could uh, to reach out to them. I mean, we had them over for dinner, and we uh, went out on some play dates with them. And uh, the wife of that family even attended an evangelistic Bible study um, that my wife was leading. But eventually, uh, their child grew older and transitioned out of our daycare and into school. And we went from seeing them pretty much every day to really not seeing them at all. And we did try several times to get together with them after that, and yet they were always too busy. So it seemed like the door to that relationship had closed, probably permanent. But we kept on praying for them. And actually, it was our kids that led the way in those prayers. Um, Those of you who attend the Wednesday evening prayer meeting here at the church uh, regularly, you probably have heard our kids mentioning this family in their prayers. And even after virtually a year, I'd say, of no contact, uh, they still would pray for them just about every chance they got, especially at family mealtimes. And guess what? About two weeks ago, completely out of the blue, without any prompting or reaching out or anything, the wife of this family texted my wife, wanting to reestablish the relationship and, uh, and start hanging out some. And so a few days later then, after that, we... Had him over to our house and uh, had several opportunities, actually, to talk about Jesus in the midst of the conversation and uh, determined that they're, they're going to um, start bringing their kids over several times during the summer to just hang out with our kids uh, throughout the summer. So there is not a doubt in my mind <laughs> that the reason that happened, it, it is because we, and specifically our kids, just wouldn't leave God alone about it. That was God. So never underestimate the power of wrestling with God in prayer. Of course, we're still wrestling with him in prayer for this family until they come all the way to saving faith in Christ. In addition, one other thing I believe is especially worthy of wrestling with God for in prayer is a closer relationship with God himself. The way I often find myself phrasing it is asking God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. You see, the greatest pursuit in which we could ever engage in our lives isn't the pursuit of the earthly blessings God gives, but rather the the pursuit of God himself. You understand, that's what Christianity is all about. It's not about primarily getting God's blessings, but about Getting God, that's what should be the central pursuit of our lives. It's what should consume us. And as we engage in that pursuit, we discover just how satisfying God is and how nothing 
else in this world even comes close to comparing with him. As David says to God in Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Also, in Psalm 34, 8, David invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good. That's the invitation. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, as Jonathan Edwards points out, it's one thing to believe theoretically that honey is sweet, perhaps maybe based on what other people have told you. However, it's another thing entirely to actually taste the sweetness of honey for yourself. There's no comparison. The taste of honey on your own tongue provides you with a much fuller knowledge of its sweetness than any merely theoretical understanding you could ever obtain through other means. And similarly, it's one thing to hear and embrace teaching that tells you about God and about his power and love and wisdom. And yet it is quite another to actually experience God and behold his glory and to taste and see for yourself how good he is. And that's what God invites us to do. Now, according to the Bible, we're not just supposed to believe in God. We're supposed to experience God in a real and personal way. Taste and see, it says, that the Lord is good. So don't be satisfied with merely knowing about God. Press through in prayer until you actually know him. Wrestle with God in prayer. Don't be satisfied until you see his glory and experience his presence and come to desire him more than all the rest of life's blessings put together. Pursue God with the tenacity of Jacob, who said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Is that the all-consuming determination with which you pursue God himself?